0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. Before I get started, let's hear a word from my sponsor. everyone, welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So, before we get started here, if you can go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast, wherever you may be receiving this podcast, it'll go a great deal of uh, distance to help this channel out. So, this episode is going to take us over to North Bible Church in Scottsdale, Arizona with former senior pastor Jay Churchovich as he takes us through the book of Revelation. I hope you enjoy.
1: Thank you, Wes. Thank you, Wilgens. great to see your faces. Great to hear your voices and hear all that God's doing uh, in your lives in Namibia. And we'll certainly continue with you guys in prayer. We miss you guys, but we're excited to hear uh, the update. i encouraged to hear the update. Great to see you all here this morning. Thanks for joining us. Have you guys had a good weekend this weekend? Have been having a good weekend? Yeah? Yeah? I've had a great weekend. Thank you for asking. Uh, I know that none of you actually did. I can feel that you're asking in your hearts and I guess that's what's important, but thank you for asking. I uh, had a great weekend. Just got back from an elder retreat this past weekend. I uh, got some time to spend with our elders. We went on an annual retreat. We do this about uh, this time of the year every year and uh, one of the things I love about it is just an opportunity to spend some great time with some really great men. If you haven't met our, the elders on our elder team, they are great men and they were a privilege and a blessing to spend some time with over this weekend. Um, we also enjoyed kind of getting out to Northern Arizona, getting into the cooler weather a little bit as, as summer still kind of winds down here uh, in Scottsdale. But it was great. One of the things I love really most about the retreats, other than the weather and the company, is really just the opportunity to spend some dedicated time really talking about who God wants us to be here at North Bible. We talk about that a lot as elders, but on the retreats, especially, we get to focus on kind of some long-term planning. What is it that God? Who is it that God is calling us to be here at North? What should we be doing? What What are the things that we should be preparing? For? for. And as we're talking about these things, we were able to answer a lot of different questions or at least ask questions. We're still working on some of the answers, but asking some of the questions like, what should we be putting our attention towards in this coming year? Uh, How should we be spending our resources? What are some of the challenges maybe that we see coming? And how are we prepared to respond to those challenges? Um, We talked about budgets and staffing and church events and all these things that I'm sure um, as your eyes are glazing over you as I talk about them. You're very excited about this morning, as I can tell. But I geek out on these things. I love these things. These are kind of the things that I just really love to talk about because it's the heartbeat of the church. And we get back to this question of who does Jesus want us to be uh, as the church and specifically as North Bible. We get to reflect on the many ways that he's blessed us and the ways that he's leading us forward. And I realize that for a lot of people most of what I described is probably not your ideal way to spend a weekend. Uh, no offense to the elders, I loved spending the, the, the weekend, but it's probably not the, the, the way I would choose to spend all of my weekends either. Uh, but it was really a great time. And I think given... Uh, Uh, Given what we're talking about this week and this morning in particular, those discussions meant a lot. They became particularly meaningful because you may know that we are going to be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning as we continue our series. And if you're here with us last week, you know that we're talking about, we're in the middle of talking about the seven churches of Revelation. In other words, the letters or the messages really is more appropriate to say the messages that Jesus gives to the seven churches at Revelation. And what we're going to hear are really some direct words from Jesus telling the church, this is who I've called. You to be, and this is what I'm calling you to be as you uh, go forward. And so, in this section of the book, we see a specific message to each of the seven churches in the seven cities of an area that was known as Asia during the first century. Uh, this area was under Roman rule, under the uh, Roman Empire, Roman rule at the time. And as Jesus speaks to each one of these churches, he gives them a message that is indicative of the situation that they were going through and what they were experiencing. And uh, we see uh, we saw in the first four churches last week, as Wes led us through chapter 2, all of these specific messages and what they drilled down to and distilled down to. And we saw that Jesus gave different messages to each church. We're going to see three different messages to three different churches today. But essentially, if we can just take a step back and take a bigger picture look at what Jesus is, is addressing, really the same kind of formula or the way that he addresses each church uh, is is consistent throughout. In other words, he approaches them from the standpoint of basically assessing their situation. And some situations are are better than others in these churches. And then he calls them to greater faithfulness. And then at the end, he gives them a promise or an invitation as they continue in their faith. And so we're going to see that pattern play out this morning. And I think this is a part of Revelation, if you're familiar with Revelation at all, that you're probably familiar with. Um, for a lot of reasons, I think this is the easiest part of the book to read and understand. Um, it breaks down in very similar ways to a lot of the other New Testament letters. These aren't written necessarily letters, but they're kind of mini versions or messages that might remind us a lot of New Testament letters. And so they're really easy and straightforward to understand. I think, but even more than the fact that they're straightforward to read, I think there's something that's really more important in terms of why these are are, are familiar to us. Uh, It's because they're they're relatable. I mean, they're they're practical. They're immediately applicable to our situation. I mean, Jesus is using real words to address real churches that actually existed uh, in history. And I think in in very clear terms, I mean, he doesn't mince words. We're going to see that. He's very direct with what he's calling them to be and who he's calling them to be. And, uh, and, and as each church gets, very, and as it gets specific with each church, we begin to see that not only are these messages meant for those churches in the first century, but they're also meant for us. They're meant for all the churches throughout church history to apply as well. And as a pastor, I have to admit, I'm actually a little bit envious of the seven churches of Revelation in this way. Uh, You may know that uh, you may know uh, you know how many times over this uh, this this past year that's it's it's been it's been difficult at times to make decisions in certain cases, Uh, and and it would have been great to have Jesus just kind of come into our staff meeting and say, "Okay, this is the decision we're making this week." You know how many times I would have loved for Jesus to just walk into our staff meeting because we're discussing all these different decisions that we were making, and I think at times as a pastor you feel like no matter what decision I make, it's going to be the wrong one according to half the church, and then the other half of the church is going to think the next decision. And you make is the wrong decision, and it would have just been great to have Jesus just walk into the staff meeting and say, hey, guys, this is what we're doing uh, with COVID. This is what we're doing with mask mandates. This is what we're doing in response to this thing or that thing, and all the difficult questions that we experienced over this past year. And uh, it would have been great to come in on like a Sunday morning, for example, and say, hey, well, Jesus came to our staff meeting this week, and this is what we're doing. If you have a problem with it, you can take it up with him. <laughs> well, until Jesus comes back, though, we have the next best thing. We have his words to the church, to the churches here, and his words to us in history, and we have his spirit with us, the same spirit whom Jesus is going to say is speaking to the churches if we will listen to him. And yes, although these words were originally, of course, written seven, or 2,000 years ago to these seven churches in history, uh, we'll find that as much as things have changed in the church to, uh, in the last 2,000 years, there's a lot of things that have remained the same. We still struggle with the same challenges, the same questions, maybe the same doubts, the same difficulties that our brothers and sisters struggled with 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. And before we get into chapter 3, I think to look at the second half of these seven churches of Revelation, let's talk about what the heart of what Jesus is getting at, driving at in these messages. It's about, these church, it's about, it's about really who these churches are worshiping, and who these churches are witnessing for out into the world. These two things. Worship and witness are critical to what Jesus is challenging these churches to embrace. And the same thing comes to us as well. Who are we worshiping? And who are we witnessing out into the world by the way that we live? Both to one another and out into the unbelieving world who doesn't know Jesus yet. And when we get down to it, really, Jesus is pressing them to, say, to, to realize, you cannot be both with Rome and Caesar and with me. Because I don't share my glory with anyone else. And really no one else deserves Jesus' glory, which is one of the things we see in the book of Revelation. And I think it's important to keep these things in focus. This is about worship and faithful witness. Who is your king? Is your king Jesus or is he Caesar? Where is your home? Is your home in this world or is it in the world to come? Where is your true citizenship? In Rome or in the kingdom of God? And Jesus is emphatically saying over and over to these churches in these messages that you cannot serve two masters. And so I wanted to focus that point as we make that, uh, as we make our turn to uh, Revelation chapter 3, because I think this is so important. We can get into these messages and think to ourselves, you know, there's all this language about the things that we should be doing and the things that we shouldn't be doing. And I, I don't think really that's the point. I don't think this is about behavior modification necessarily. This is about Jesus calling us back to faithfulness and much like the old testament prophets did if you look at these messages you might notice that they have the form of kind of old testament prophet oracles and they have in, the, in very much the same way the same kind of function in other words what the old testament prophets were often doing were calling god's people back to faithfulness out of their idolatry because they had given their devotion to other gods and so the prophets would be sent to call them back to covenant faithfulness to god and in the end to challenge them to work, to, to move forward in faithfulness. And this is much the same thing that Jesus is doing here, complete with even the invitations to say, if you will come, I'm inviting you to come back to me. And I think it's all important to also see that not only is Jesus fulfilling a prophetic role in this way, but he's fulfilling a pastoral role. Um, uh, we, we saw in the very first chapter, in this introduction to this section, that Jesus is walking among the churches. He's not walking away from the churches In spite of the fact that they might be unfaithful in a lot of ways, he's not walked away from them. In spite of the fact that they might be uh, continuing in sin, he has not sent them away. Instead, he's walking among them and he is inviting them to come back to him. And so he's prophetic and he's pastoral all at the same time. Michael Gorman points out the prophet-pastor role that Jesus plays in Revelation. He says, we read Revelation as words from a prophet-pastor. In order to be formed and transformed, not merely informed, because Jesus is both awe-inspiring and present, that he is here with us, he can speak words of comfort and challenge, appealing to the church's heart, to their emotion, as well as to their minds, their reason. And in playing this function as prophet-pastor, Jesus challenges the church as the prophet, and he comforts the churches as their pastor. And in playing a pastoral role, even as these churches are unfaithful, Jesus is still with them. So I think it's important to think about that in terms of how we read these messages. Remember, I want to remind you of this, and I'll continue to remind you of this throughout this entire season, our, our series, that this letter, the letter of the book of Revelation, is a letter primarily of hope. And I think it's important for us to continue to say that over and over again until it really clicks for us, because in a lot of ways, the way that Revelation is typically understood is not primarily as a letter of hope. But this is a letter of hope, and we actually see that carried through to these messages to the three churches that we're going to look at today, the churches of Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, which is just fun to say, Laodicea. So let's take a look at the maps of the churches again, just to give you a, a reminder here. We looked at one through four last week. We're going to be looking at five, six, and seven on that list here this morning, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Revelation chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to read the entire chapter together as we look at Jesus' messages to these three churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they still walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and will I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And then he says to the church of Philadelphia, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, to the church at Laodicea, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot or cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For, I, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked." The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's talk about what we've seen in each of these three messages to the three churches in this chapter. And Let's begin with the most important feature that happens in each one of these. Uh, messages is certainly the most important thing about revelation it's the thing that we saw in chapter one in the beginning of this whole section and it's this that jesus is at the center that he is the point notice that in each one of these messages to the church all seven of them jesus begins with presenting himself in certain terms he talks about his character he talks about he gives he gives himself titles he introduces himself to the church by these titles and these things that he is and what you'll see is that in many ways those are actually pulled from that first vision that we see in Revelation chapter 1. A lot of those titles or those characters are either direct, or characteristics are directly pulled from that vision or they're allusions to that vision in and of itself, right? And so what we're being told get, again is to focus on the fact that the point of this, although these messages are being communicated to the churches, the point of this all is that it should focus us on Jesus who is the main point and the main character. With that focus, then, we can get into specifically what each of these three churches in Revelation chapter 3 are being uh, being, uh, spoken to. Again, let's remember, although these words were spoken to real churches in the first century, seven different cities, they are still words that are being spoken to us as well. So let's put up the first chart, the the message to the church at Sardis. And notice that Jesus presents himself to Sardis as the one who has the seven spirits. Right, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit as the one who does his work among churches to be the one who is the presence and the power of God in the church today. And he is also the one who gives us life and understanding to God's Word. Right, This is the Holy Spirit, his work within the church. Jesus also says that he is the one who holds the seven stars. From Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, we know that this is a reference to the angels. Most likely, a reference to heavenly beings who actually are guardians or protectors of the churches in those locations. And so Jesus presents himself, again, to Sardis as the one who brings the message of a prophet, challenging them by the words of the Spirit and uh, the transformation of the Spirit and the work and the power and presence of the Spirit in the church, as well as the one who is the pastor, the comforter, who is being protected by his heavenly angels. Now, When you see the challenge that Jesus gives to the church, you can see why Jesus highlights these two particular aspects of his nature. The church at Sardis was apparently a church who had a good reputation among the churches, but who was actually dying spiritually. And although Jesus says there are a few people within the church at Sardis who are still walking faithfully, for the most part, most of the people who are at the church are people who are either spiritually sleeping or spiritually dead you get the impression really that this church is a church that's kind of on spiritual life support. And so Jesus comes to them as probably people who are either compromising or forgetting Jesus. We don't know if it's like the older generations who started the church were the ones who were faithful and now those are dying out. The new generation comes in and they're the ones who are more kind of compromising or forgetting their faith in Jesus, whatever it may be. In response though, what Jesus is calling out is essentially these types of Christians who seem to be Christians in name only. They take a lot of pride in being a part of the church of Sardis, but in reality, they don't even seem to really know Jesus. And so as a response, Jesus tells them to wake up. Another, another way of translating this is become watchful. Look at where your heart really is. Do you actually really know me? And he tells them to cling to what is still alive. This is a church who needs the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the seven spirits, so to speak, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit, to bring an awakening among them. And Jesus says it's evident by your lack of works, probably their lack of service, the way that they're loving and serving one another, and the way that they're uh, witnessing out in the community and the world around them, that it is obvious that they're on spiritual life support and about to die. In addition, they're referred to as having soiled garments, which means that their faith was not pure. This is a classic reference in the Old Testament to idolatry. And so what he's confronting them with is the fact that their faith has been not pure. They've been compromising in the way that they've been worshiping their devotion. Their devotion has led them into idolatry. And so that as a result, they've fallen victim to the world and the pressures around them to give into whatever it may be. Maybe it's Roman worship. Maybe it's worship of the emperor. Maybe it's worship of the world, whatever it may be. But whatever it is, Sardis really seems to be asleep at the wheel. They've forgotten why they exist as a church in the first place, and these words, along with the Holy Spirit's work in them, are focused on waking them up so that they can come alive again. They're told to repent, go back to the place where you were at one point previously, when your faith was actually real, when you knew me as a church. Uh, But of course, they had to make a decision, and their decision is either to stay asleep (laughs) or to wake up. And if they procrastinate, they might find themselves in a position where Jesus will come to them, not as their reigning Lord and Savior whom they're waiting for, but actually as a thief in the night. You may be familiar with this term. It's a term that's used for Jesus in both Matthew chapter 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in both of those references, refers to Jesus as coming towards those who are non-believers as their judge, as a thief in the night, as somebody whom they didn't expect. And so the message is clear here. For those in Sardis who think that just going to church or calling themselves Christians or doing churchy things makes them Jesus' people, they may find out that when Jesus returns, he is less of their Savior and more of their judge. The invitation that Jesus then gives refers to these garments. And he says, which represent really faith and righteousness before God, he says, Come and receive the white garments from me. And as they represent salvation and fellowship and righteousness in Christ, really what Jesus is doing is he's evangelizing the church. He's preaching the gospel to a group of people who believe that they are already Christians, but they're, but they're so asleep they don't realize that they don't actually know Jesus in the first place. And he says to them, come take pure robes from me. It's not the robes that they clean for themselves, but it's the robes that are clean and white that are given to them. Remember when we looked at uh, Revelation chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the symbolism that's in this book. White represents victory, resurrection, purity, righteousness. And so this is an obvious representation to the salvation that Jesus gives us. Remember in all of this that Jesus is the one who is presented at the beginning as the one who has white hair with a white robe in Revelation. He is the one who has won victory by his resurrection and given us righteousness and reconciliation. And so he's calling the church at Sardis to be clothed in faith, to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to come to him for salvation. Which is somewhat of a striking image when you realize, of course, that he's talking to a church and a church who believes that they are Christians, that they're followers of Jesus. How shocking might it have been for them to realize Jesus is telling us we aren't even his in the first place? That's the message to the church at Sardis. From the church of Sardis, we move to the church at Philadelphia. Now, the church at Philadelphia, Jesus presents himself as the holy and true one and the one who has the keys of David, which may sound like a strange phrase. It's, a, it's actually a direct reference, though, to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where this reference communicates and represents God's Messiah, who is the one who gives God's people access to God's kingdom. In other words, he declares who are really God's people and who have the right to enter God's kingdom and who do not. And when you join this, of course, with another image of the keys from Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus has the keys to death and Hades, what you see is that what is being communicated here is that Jesus is the sovereign one who holds the power of salvation and judgment. He is the one who holds the access to God's kingdom. And so Jesus' message to the church of Philadelphia has a lot of Old Testament overtones. He says, first of all, that he has the keys of David, which is obviously an Old Testament reference. But also he says that he is the true and the faithful one. Likely what's going on at the Church of Philadelphia, we can kind of see it in Jesus' message as well, is that that church is experiencing pressure, persecution, maybe even mocking from the Jews who were there in the city. And they were accusing the the Church of Philadelphia and mocking the Church of Philadelphia for uh, worshiping Jesus whom they believed was the false Messiah. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the true one. By saying, I am the true Messiah. And so be encouraged, even though, and and, and look, think about this, with the Church of Philadelphia, not only are they experiencing the normal persecution from the Romans that every other church would have experienced, but in this case, they're also getting pressure and persecution and mocking from the local Jews who are there. Who are coming along and saying, you worship this false messiah. And so Jesus says, right, I am actually the true one. So hold fast to what you have, even though I know that you're being pressured from all sides, including these people who claim to be Jews, who claim to be God's people, who are saying that you are worshiping a false messiah. Know that I am the true one, the one who actually holds the keys of David. And then with some amazing wordplay where Jesus realizes and understands that the Jews relied on the physical temple and the physical city of Jerusalem as the place where God dwelled. Jesus, as the Messiah, is the fullness of God who makes his people the new temples, the people who have the Spirit within them dwelling as temples of the Holy Spirit in the world, as not temples built by human hands which can be torn down, but as a church of people indwelt by the Spirit of God as living temples for a new Jerusalem, not just for a physical city that may pass away, But for a new Jerusalem, which if you know the end of the book of Revelation, we'll get a little bit more into that as we get there later on, is a reference to new creation, the eternal new creation. Not just a physical city, but an entire new creation on earth. And you may notice that the Church of Philadelphia has the honor of being one of only two churches in the list of seven that actually doesn't have a rebuke, a direct direct rebuke or a direct warning. But their, their challenge in this case is to be encouraged to stay faithful and steadfast in, the, in their faith. Realizing that Jesus is the real Messiah, even, even, in the, even with the fact that, as Jesus identifies, they have little power, which probably means that they're a small congregation. There's not a lot of them. Uh, they probably don't have a lot of money or financial resources. They probably don't have a lot of social or political standing. I mean, all those things are probably understood as them having little power. And yet they've got pressure from the Jews and the Romans who have all the money, all the power, and all of the social standing around them consistently in their daily lives. And Jesus says, remain in me. Remain faithful, because one day I will give you the crown, and and one day I will give you a heavenly crown. One day I will give you all of the things that you lack in this world. And he says to them, rely on the power of the heavenly inheritance that I will give to you. You have little power in this world, but you have much power in the kingdom because of your faith in me. So Jesus presents himself as the faithful one who has overcome death on their behalf and tells them to overcome as well. And finally, we get to the last church in the list, the last of the seven, the church at Laodicea, which is just my favorite one to say, Laodicea, just kind of flows right off the mouth. Might be the one that you're most familiar with as well, because we get a very, uh, a very familiar image come out of this church. But going from the one church who doesn't, going from one of the churches who doesn't have a rebuke, to uh, one of the churches that has nothing that Jesus actually commends them on. There's no identifiable fruit within this church at all. And the church of Laodicea actually seems to be in the worst shape of all the seven churches spiritually where at least Sardis had a remnant of a few people who were faithful, Jesus doesn't identify anyone within the church who is faithful. There seems to be no fruit at all. And so Jesus identifies himself to the Laodicean church as the amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, scholars believe this is a reference back to Isaiah 66. And if you look at Isaiah 66, that's the chapter in Isaiah where God promises new creation. He promises the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to see why that's, or that, why that's important here in a minute. But, of course, amen is a term that we're all familiar with. It's a term that we typically use when we close out our prayers uh, for the most part. You may, not, you may or may not know what, actually what that word means. Uh, you may not know that it's actually a Hebrew word that has a meaning, but, it, it, but uh, it actually means to confirm or to establish. And so the tradition of saying amen at the end of our prayers Is actually a way of saying uh, and praying that God would confirm or that God would establish his will and purposes in this world. So there's a lot of things we pray for, right? We pray hopingly that God or or wishfully that God might, you know, uh, answer our prayers in some way. But at the end, when we get to a place of amen, we are throwing it in God's hands, basically saying, Lord, this is my will. This is what I would like to see happen. But in the end, your will be done. May you confirm and establish with the prayers that I offer, however broken they may be your will in this world. And so when Jesus says here that he is the, the amen, he's making a huge statement. He is saying that he accomplishes the will of God in the world, that the purposes of God, he is, he is the one who accomplishes and establishes the purpose, purposes of God as the one who is the faithful and true witness in the world. And where do we see that most? Where do we see the purposes of God and the will of God exercised and perfected most? Well, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the promise of what will happen one day where Jesus will reign as the eternal king over his kingdom and where the will of God and the glory of God will be established throughout all of creation. Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true one. Now, again, Jesus has nothing to really commend the Laodiceans for, but he does rebuke them as being lukewarm. And he says, you're neither hot nor cold. Now, you may have heard this analogy uh, interpreted uh, in a way that's com- commonly interpreted in the sense that lukewarm means kind of middle of the road. And Jesus just wants them to either be hot or cold so that they would know whether they're good or bad, so to speak, whether they're with him or against him. Hot being like, you know, you're on fire for the Lord. And so that means that that's hot and cold being that you're just indifferent to God. And so uh, that's often, it's often been translated this way. I think more likely The analogy is actually to say that lukewarm means absolutely useless in their faith. That there's nothing there. Because hot and cold water actually both have their function. Cold water was drinking water. It gave life. It was refreshing. Hot water was water that was often used medicinally. It was used in cooking. And it was also used to kind of kill parasites and those kinds of things, right? And so hot and cold water both had their function. And so when Jesus says to Laodicea, you are lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth, what he's saying is that you're completely useless. I'd rather you be hot or cold, at least you'd be good for something in your faith. As it is, you're showing that your faith really has zero substance to it at all. And the issue that Jesus calls them out on specifically is that they thought they were rich and had become wealthy. And apparently they were a financially rich church, they had a lot of money, which led them to believe that they were just fine. They were wealthy. There's probably at least a couple reasons we can assume that they came to this conclusion. One is kind of in the text as it is, is that they thought that because they had the resources and the money that they had, they didn't really need to rely on God to provide for them. They could trust their money and resources practically to, uh, to supply the comfort and the security and the good life that they actually wanted. They might have also looked at their situation as being wealthy, as an indicator that God's favor was on them. That because we are rich, and because we have everything that we have, God must be pleased with us, because look at all that he has given us. Which has more in line with the prosperity gospel than it does with the actual biblical gospel. And you can't help but contrast the church at Smyrna, for example, whom Jesus said was materially poor, yet spiritually rich, with the church at Laodicea, who was materially rich, and yet spiritually poor. That doesn't mean that If you're materially rich, you're automatically spiritually poor, or vice versa. But you get what's being played here, right? Jesus is calling out the fact that the church of Laodicea has relied on their material wealth, their worldly wealth, their standing in the world, and it has bound them to this world in a way that has blinded them spiritually. Not only have the Laodiceans seemingly put way too much confidence in their wealth and their love of money, but Probably we can see that another problem with their situation is that since they were wealthy, it was probably an indicator that they were compromising their faith, compromising socially, compromising in in, in various ways in the Roman Empire. Because in order to be wealthy at that time, especially for a lot of people within a church to have wealth, they would have had to compromise with the Roman system in some way. We know that socially that led them to probably engage in imperial cultic worship and all these other things. And so when you get to the end of this, the Laodicean church seems to be a church in name only. They're a church who is compromised because they have fully bought in to the systems of Rome and the comforts of this world as their hope, and their identity in this world as their new home. And this is really the antithesis. They're living out the antithesis of the message of Revelation, if you look at it this way where new creation is presented as the new reality. We talked about from the beginning, right? Revelation is all about us having an opportunity to see behind the curtain of what God is doing as he calls us into new creation. And the Laodiceans have planted themselves firmly in the creation that is passing away, in the world that is passing away. And Jesus says that he's about to spit them out of his mouth because they are not representative of him who is the living water. There is no substance at all in their faith. And this is why Jesus' introduction focuses them on a new creation. He's calling them out of the comforts of this world, out of the reliance and devotion to earthly treasures, and out of making this world their home. And we can't help but see, again, that contrast with them in Smyrna. But Jesus also uses this contrasting imagery in this. He says, to call them to true relationship, he says, Look, you think you have gold? Turn away from your reliance on that earthly gold and come get from me real gold, spiritual gold that is refined in the fire. Of course, the heavenly inheritance that we have in Christ. You may dress yourselves in beautiful, expensive clothes, yet you don't realize that you are spiritually naked. Come and get from me the white garments of salvation. You think you can see clearly from your place of wealth and influence and status in the society that you live in. But in reality, you are blind to what really matters. You need apocalypse. You need revelation. Come and see what God sees and find out what really matters. And the invitation is that Jesus would come then and dine with them that they would have true fellowship and relationship with him, and that in that fellowship there would be true inheritance and security and hope. Everything that they were working so hard to secure for themselves in this world, the same thing that unbelievers chased after, they were chasing after, and yet Jesus invites them to make themselves at home in his kingdom. A kingdom among new creation which any amount of earthly gold cannot purchase. It can only be purchased by the blood of Jesus on their behalf. Now, there's a lot that we can take, of course, for the messages of these seven churches in the book of Revelation. Um, As we've said, the comforts and challenges in many ways are timeless in terms of how they apply. And I think as we read through them, maybe you were thinking to yourself, what are some of the ways that this is relevant to the church today? What are some of the ways that this is relevant to North Bible in particular? And if you were thinking that, you are tracking well, because that's exactly what we should be doing as we read through this. But you may notice one thing, that Jesus gives all of the churches a challenge to be overcomers. And he he gives them a challenge to not compromise their faith with the world, not compromise their faith with Roman worship, but to follow him as the one who has conquered and overcome death and sin by the cross and his resurrection. We're going to get more into that. That's a huge theme going forward in the book of Revelation, being an overcomer, overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. But as we realize and what we begin to see here is that Jesus is telling us the reality of all of this together, is that whether persecution or heartache hit us, or whether it's just things that are being taken from us in this world because the world is passing away, our health, our money, our resources, our well-being, whatever it may be, that passes away in this world as it ultimately all will. These are invitations that Jesus gives to the seven churches of Asia, also to the, seven, also to the churches today of the 21st century, all over the world. And I want you to see real quick, here's a list of all the promises and invitations that Jesus gives to each one of these churches that represent new creation. To Ephesus, he says, come and eat from the tree of life. To Smyrna, he says, come and attain the crown of life, escape the second death. To Pergamum, he says, eat hidden manna, which sounds awesome, and have a white stone with a new name. To Thyatira, he says, Uh, To have authority over the nations to rule them. To Sardis he says I will clothe you with white robes your name will be in the book of life and I will confess you as one of my own before God. To Philadelphia he says come and be made a pillar of the temple of God and of the city of God for eternity. And to Laodicea he says I will give you a place with me on my eternal throne. Now we will flesh out a lot of this symbolism throughout the rest of the book of Revelation but just take that for what it is. I think it all sounds wonderful to me. I'm just to take that imagery in and to understand what those things may mean, this invitation that Jesus is inviting us, all of us, into. And so Jesus gives these invitations based on the promises that he gives, and he says, this is what life looks like with me. And he knows what they're facing is difficult. He is walking among them. He's not far from them. He's not up in a different place looking down on them. He is walking among them, seeing what they're going through, seeing the persecution and the pressure that they're facing on a day-to-day basis to compromise. And he doesn't promise that he's going to take away those difficulties, those trials, or those persecutions. Instead, he reminds them of what life will look like one day with him if they remain faithful, pointing to the new creation. And this is where the entire book is going in a lot of ways. And so when we introduced this series a couple of weeks ago, we made the point to say that all of Scripture is about Jesus, The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament points to Jesus. And one of the great things about the book of Revelation is it doesn't only point to Jesus, it tells us why Scripture points to Jesus. And we begin to see this in the book of Revelation, that this is why it all points to Jesus. He is the one with the key of David. He is the one who gives us the white garments. He is the one who has the unique authority to allow us to sit on his throne with him. He is the one who holds our eternal inheritance. This really hit me this past week as I was listening to uh, an interview with um, Pastor Tim Keller, who pastors a church in Manhattan, and they were talking to him this past week because, of course, yesterday was the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11, and he was, a pas- he was pastoring a church 20 years ago uh, during 9-11 when it actually happened, and so they were asking him to talk about the spiritual responses that he saw in the city. And uh, if you remember that time, if you remember that time, if you were remember that time, of course, churches exploded in attendance in the weeks and months following 9-11. In fact, uh, Tim Keller's church, they had 2,800 people uh, on the Sunday before 9-11. On the Sunday after 9-11, 5,200 people showed up. They almost doubled in size from one week to the, to the other uh, as a result of 9-11. Now, um, during that sermon on that Sunday following 9-11, uh, he preached from the Gospel of John, from the scene where uh, at Lazarus' grave where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and, and the life. And what, and what his point was, to those people who were hurting, to those people who were confused, to those people who were fearful, to those people who didn't know what was going to happen going forward, maybe to those people who had lost family members at the World Trade Center, is that he said, look, Jesus doesn't just promise us consolation. Jesus promises us resurrection, He doesn't just promise that he'll get us out of the sin and the evil and the brokenness or give us a break from it for a period of time. He promises nothing less than a completely new creation. And I think, as you think about it, it was a perfect message for those who were in New York City at the time, in particular struggling with fear and uncertainty and all that they were facing in the moment. If you can remember what it was like 20 years ago, I remember it vividly in a lot of ways. There was a fear that gripped our nation about other attacks that might come. I mean, is our water supply going to be poisoned? If, if, if that can happen to the World Trade, if that can happen to the, uh, to the towers in New York City, what else might happen? It was about anthrax and a bunch of other things that we were afraid of. Anything could happen. And there was a big question of whether or not we were going to be able to overcome this fear and this threat that was in front of us. And as Keller pointed out, Jesus doesn't promise that we won't lose everything in this world. That may in fact happen. It happened to many people on that day 20 years ago. But what he does promise us is that if we we are in him, he doesn't merely give us consolation or escape from this world, but he promises us resurrection and new creation and victory over sin and death. And if you look at all these invitations from the seven churches in the book of Revelation, they're an invitation to live now from the new creation reality that we have in Christ. And in Tim Keller's interview, they talked about the fact that his church added over 1,000 people who stayed long-term at his church after 9-11, which is a pretty amazing number. If you remember at the time, most churches, they spiked in attendance like his did. But over time, the weeks and months that followed 9-11, many people stopped coming to church who came as a result of 9-11, Right? For many people, they went to church because they were afraid. They were suddenly aware of the immediate presence of evil. Maybe they, uh, maybe they were brought to face-to-face with their own mortality. They realized how fragile life can be, and so it drove them to church. It drove them to seek out God. But for some, for the most part, they slowly started not attending anymore. They, once they felt safe again, once they felt like they had control of their lives again, once they forgot how fragile life in this world really is, They went right back to making their home in this world. And they didn't see any more need for God or for the church. I think it's easy to see why people might make that decision. But let's not make the mistake that thinking just because we are going to church that we're all that much different. I think if anything, these messages to the church, to the churches of Revelation, remember these are not messages to people outside the church. These are messages to people who are in the church who claim to be Christ followers. And if you take these messages for what they are worth, uh, In some of these cases, they're very, very challenging and condemning even in some ways. So do we really, I think think we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that we need God this desperately? Or are we more like the church at Sardis that talk a big game, but our faith is really asleep at the wheel? Do we really want to be with Jesus, or are we more like the church at Ephesus who has forgotten its first love? Does the truth of Jesus and his gospel really inform how we live or do we believe the lies that bind us up like the church of Thyatira? Are we true worshipers of Jesus with our lives or do we chase after all of the other things in this world with the same zeal and fervor that non-believers do like the church of Laodicea? Things that come from this world bind us to this world. C.S. Lewis once said that God ultimately gives us what we want. If we want this world without Jesus, he will give us that. But if we want Jesus more than we want this world, he will give us that too, or that instead. The one thing that he will not give us is Jesus and the world. You cannot serve two masters. And when we read passages like this, it can be easy to get bound up in all the things that we need to do better and all these kinds of things, but I want to call us back to the point of all this. We don't create our own light. That light is the presence of Jesus among us. We don't overcome on our own. We overcome by faith in the one who has overcome on our behalf. And I want to close with this quick story. I was listening to another interview this past week uh, related to current events, but a totally different subject. Uh, It was a guy by the name of Tim Nettleton who works with Voice of the Martyrs, Ministry Voice of the Martyrs, and he was telling a story about a Chinese woman, a Christian woman by the name of Sister Tong, And Sister Tong had been arrested in China for hosting a house church meeting in her home. The government had broken up her house church meeting. Uh, All the rest of the people were able to leave, but she, because she was hosting it, was thrown in prison for six months. And so he sat down with her as part of what their ministry does. They give a voice to the persecuted church. And so he sat down with her with a translator, and they were talking about uh, the experience. And he asked her one question in particular, what was prison like? And he was expecting to get from her the typical kind of rundown of all the gory details of what a prison in China looks like and feels like. It was cold. How cold was it? How moldy was the food? How hard was the bed? How big were the rats? I mean, all those gory details. And instead, when he asked the question through the translator, he noticed that she just got a big smile on her face, and she said, that was a wonderful time. And for a minute, he thought to himself, the translator must have totally misunderstood what I was trying to ask. So he asked the question again. And she nods back at him and she smiles and she says, that was a wonderful time. And she said, because during that six months, I experienced the presence of Jesus like I have never experienced him before in my life. From the time that I woke up to the time that I went to bed, he was as near to me and as present to me as I've ever felt him. And not only that, but there were three other women in my cell with me. They didn't know Jesus. I shared the gospel with them and they all became Christians. C.S. Lewis also once wrote, when I find in myself desires that cannot be fulfilled in this world, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Sister Tong was expressing those desires, what she really wanted. Her desires came from another world and for another world. And so church, the central question in all of these things, if I could boil this down to one thing that Jesus is trying to get to and get us to is, what do we really want This is the real question behind the messages from Jesus. What do we really want? Do we want Jesus? Do we really want his kingdom more than we want anything else in this world? Many times we haven't stoked enough of a desire for the kingdom of God because too many times we are perfectly satisfied with what the world can give us. Let's pray that the Lord would wake us up to new creation longings that are too big for this world so that we would settle for nothing less than full devotion to Jesus as our treasure and as our king. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that prayer. In many ways, this operates on a level, Lord, that we can't even do ourselves. And when you call us, and when you call, like the Church of Sardis, for example, to come to you and to receive white robes, we know that those are robes that we cannot clean ourselves. We need your salvation. When you tell us to overcome, Lord, we know that we only overcome by the one who has overcome on our behalf. And so we come to you this morning, Lord, knowing that so many times our hearts are distracted, that our hearts become comfortable, our lives become comfortable in this world. so that our desires aren't stoked for your kingdom because we are perfectly satisfied with what we have in this world. And if we're not careful, we become like the church of Laodicea that doesn't realize that we're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked spiritually. Lord, we ask that you would stoke up in us a desire for a new creation reality that would be so big, too big for this world to contain and that in the end, Jesus, you would be our treasure and our king because we have seen your beauty, we've seen your worthiness, and we won't settle for anything less. Spirit, you are speaking to us. We know this from the book of Revelation. What the Spirit says to the church is, Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you lead us? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you lead us gently into repentance so that we would receive the invitation that Jesus is offering us? In the end, would we be a church who fully represents the image and the calling that you want for North Bible Church? We pray all these things in the one who has overcome on our behalf, the one who holds the key of David, the one who is the true and faithful witness, the one who sits on his throne even now, the one who walks among us as the true prophet, as the good shepherd, the one who gave his life as the Lamb of God. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
0: Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. I really enjoyed that last broadcast. I've always enjoyed what Jay had to say. So, if you haven't done it already, go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast, wherever you may be listening to podcast. so you'll be up to date with every single episode that comes out from the Next Generation Saints studio. So, until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless you all, my dearly beloved.